everyone welcome back to desert sirens i'm chelsea and i'm janelle and uh, i'm excited for this week because i get to do part two of my story and you're doing a new story (laughs) i am i'm doing a new story but i am so eager to hear the rest of yours (laughs) it's a lot it took me a long time to finish my notes as you know (laughs) yes All right, guys, let's jump right into it. So I'm coming at you with a purely historical story. Um, As far as I know, there's no ghosts involved with this one, but I figured Chelsea had plenty of supernatural going on with her so I could go a little more into the history. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to be talking about the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, which I have... Yeah, Yeah. I've mentioned in multiple episodes, and I keep saying I'm going to do an episode on it, so here we are. (laughs) You know, Um, I actually missed history class, so. Oh, nice. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do want to start off, though, before I jump into it, saying that um, there is a wonderful book called uh, Pope Leaguer of the First American Revolution, which is edited by Joe S. Sando and Herman Aguayo. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just want to mention that because, unfortunately, even though I spent a ton of time researching, I didn't get to read a whole lot of this book. And what I did get, though, it is a very interesting book that goes a lot more into the Pueblo, Puebloing side of the story. Oh, okay. Um, so I highly recommend checking that out if you guys want even more information than what I'm about to give. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, all right. So there was a Pueblo revolt in 1680. And... First off, I want to go into the background history and the reasons for the revolt. Um, And as we start off with that, um, one thing to know is that the Pueblos in New Mexico all have many similarities, but they're all separate nations and are not actually one group. Uh, Each has a unique identity. Um, One of the big ways they're differentiated is by their language. They actually have three language families. And I'm going to try really hard to pronounce all these words correctly. I had a whole plan to research how to pronounce them, but unfortunately, I just ran out of time. Otherwise, yeah. we would have had we would have had to wait three more weeks for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the three language families are Karasang, Tangawang, and Zunian, and each of those families do break down into different dialects depending on the pueblo. Uh, for example, Tangawang actually breaks down mainly into Tewa and Tiwa. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that will be mentioned a whole lot as I go through this. So one thing to note, though, is that a lot of information from the Puebloing side of the story is missing or unclear because they primarily pass down their history through oral tradition. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was done to hide their plans and secrets from the invading Spanish and also keep their traditions and such alive. So they really didn't write anything down because their livelihood was so threatened that they didn't want the Spanish to get a hold of anything. Even like before that time, though? Well, yeah, I mean, before I don't know. Just in general? Yeah, just in general. They're more of an oral history type um, of people. Which I get, but it's also like you probably miss out on a lot, too, because of that. Yes. Um, So anyway, so... We're going to jump into the history of the Puebloans and the Spanish. Um, Obviously, the Puebloans had a long history prior to this, but if I went into that, 
I would dominate this whole entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you guys are wanting to listen to part two, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so starting in 1528, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca and three other Spaniards survived a shipwreck near modern Texas during a failed attempt to settle Florida. Mm-hmm. And they it missed took- it by a long shot. Right. <laughs> um, it took them eight years of wandering and being captured by various natives to get to Mexico City, mm-hmm. where they reported their experiences and the supposed seven cities of Cibola, which was said to have immense gold. amounts of wealth. Yeah, yeah, the seven cities of gold. That's yeah. what a lot more people know it as. Um, so they brought and they're like, hey, there's a ton of wealth out there. Like they have cities of gold. Um, we should probably check that out. And so in May of 1539 so about uh what would that be 11 years later um a black man named estevanico was the first non-native to meet the new mexico pueblo people at zuni pueblo Mm. um he was part of a small expedition led by franciscan fray marcos de nisa who took the credit for meeting the puebloans despite not even being there uh, no. He was actually, he was hanging out, like, looking at the Pueblo from a distance, but um, they didn't want to give a black man credit for... Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of interesting that he was even there. Right, yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah, they were there, but, yeah, they just... Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so you get caught out of history a lot. Yeah. yeah. But the Pueblo people d- have often joked, apparently, there was a quote in one of the books I read that said, the first white man we saw was a black man. <laughs> Yeah, that must have been really confusing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But also, uh, Denisa, the Franciscan, he sent, they didn't expand on this, but apparently he sent kind of an iffy report to Spain, New Spain, sorry, Mm -hmm. where modern Mexico is now. Yeah. Um, He sent like an iffy report, apparently, not really expanding upon, but I guess it was weird. Mm -hmm. And it led them to believe that the wealth tumors were wealth rumors were true i can talk i promise (laughs) (laughs) um so in 1540 the new spain viceroy sent a full expedition led by francisco vasquez de coronado with franciscan missionaries tagging along uh near nafiat which is um the sandia pueblo Mm. Uh, so that's the thing. Whenever I had it, I tried to incorporate the Puebloan word for the location, but I also okay. include how most people know the Pueblos today. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so near Nafiat or Sandia Pueblo, a Spaniard asked a Tiwa man to hold his horse during this expedition uh, before he went on to rape the man's wife. So this was kind of the beginning, probably not quite the beginning, but the beginning of the documented violence that the Mm -hmm. Pueblo started experiencing. Yeah. um, With the Spanish people. Uh, So, and I'm sorry, I should have mentioned a trigger warning ahead of time. We are going to talk about a lot of brutal stuff that happened to people. I'm trying not to go too (laughs) in-depth with all of it, but... I mean, it's a huge part of, unfortunately, about you know, yeah, Europeans there's a re- taking over yeah. Native American land. Yeah. There's a reason the Puebloans wanted to drive these people out. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so anyway, so like I said, he 
the Spaniard asked a man to hold his horse and then he went inside and raped the guy's wife. Um, the Tiwa warriors did fight back immediately once they found out what had happened, but many were killed or driven to the mountains in which at this point it was midwinter mm-hmm. where more died due to the elements. Yeah. Um, they later tied prayer feathers to their twin war gods, um, basically asking for revenge for that. Um, these twin war gods play a lot into uh, their belief system and uh, the ones they looked to when it came to this revolt. Uh, so anyways... I mean, <clears throat> talking about like they had little idols or something that they tied feathers to? Is that what you're saying? That That's what I understood. It was, it okay. was like maybe some sort of like statue or something. Okay. Um, but anyway, so this uh, expedition led by Coronado, it lasted for two years uh, where they were searching around New Mexico, but they failed to find any wealth. So therefore it was considered a failed mission. All they found was dirt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> dirt and corn. Perfect. <laughs> um, but this reduced interest in exploring the area for a while. So that was in 1540. Then we jump all the way ahead to 1581. At this point, a small Franciscan missionary expedition with a few soldiers uh, ended up going back into New Mexico. It's possible that they went more with the intention of looking for more people to enslave. Uh, They weren't quite clear on their purpose, but yeah. But there, uh, some of the people tagging along, that was definitely their field of work, I guess you could say. Um, so they went in. Uh, not much more about that expedition. But after that, the Spanish crown decided that they wanted a settlement in the north. And they sent multiple expeditions over the next decade to attempt establishing that settlement. All of them failed. And it was because the people on the expeditions would fight with each other so much. They couldn't decide who was in charge. They couldn't decide how things should be done. So it just all fell apart. And plus two, like they like never were as prepared as they should have been. They would run out of supplies. They would start dying and basically say, forget it. We're going home. <laughs> um. So in January of 1598, uh, Don Juan de Oñate, who was a wealthy mining entrepreneur, went with 129 citizen soldiers, their families, and 10 Franciscan missionaries with a lot of livestock. Um, they all went on this colonizing expedition. Okay. Basically, they got a lot more backing, so they were able to go a lot more prepared. Yeah, they even brought like their own source of food, pretty much, too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it was, I just wrote a lot of livestock they listed. It was it was a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so he went, uh, originally he set up the capital, at, and please forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, but it is, I, looks like capital at Yunge Owinge, which was also known as the Mockingbird Place Village, across the Rio Grande from O.K. Owinge, which is the San Juan Pueblo. Okay. Um, in 1599... He did lead 70 Spanish soldiers to Acoma Pueblo, which is actually a Pueblo, very interesting place. If you ever get a chance to check it out, um, it's a Pueblo village on top of a cliff. Like it's literally oh. a cliff all the way around. It's also oh, known as Sky okay. City today. Um, how did they get up there and down? Um, I believe they have like, you know, I, I can't remember for sure. I want to say they had like 
indents in the cliff that you could climb or they had like a ladder system that they could pull up as well in case of like attack. Oh, okay. But I might be wrong though. And anybody listening, if you want to correct me, please feel free. I haven't been there in a long time. So interesting. That's like interesting even like for like supplies and stuff to yeah. get up and down from your city. Yeah, I know that the way that they ended up building the church there, there's a lot of intrigue about that because um, the wood that they use, like these huge logs, were very difficult to get up there. A lot of people wondered mm. for a long time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so 1599, Oñate um, legs 70 Spanish soldiers to this pueblo to punish them for their warriors killing 12 soldiers um, in recent past from that point. Uh, it led to two days of fighting, which ended up with almost 600 Akama men, women, and children being captured and enslaved. Many were tried and mutilated for their crimes against the Spanish crown. Oh. And by mutilated, I believe this was the case like of when Oñate um, and his men, they actually would cut off one of, I think he cut off one of their feet oh. for this. Like there was a lot of people that was the that was the mutilation. Oh. Um yeah. Uh the Pueblo was also burned down and the survivors that weren't caught captured fled. Uh this made the Spanish known for cruelty and it increased the Puebloans' resentment towards the Spanish. Yeah. Um Oñate's success su- uh, successor, Governor Pedro de Peralta, moved the capital to Santa Fe in 1610. okay yeah so we had one capital apparently for what would that be about 12 years Mm -hmm. (laughs) in one space and then okay got moved to santa fe and that's what it is to this day yes it is yes um so from the beginning when the Puebloans encountered the spanish they were actually very cooperative and peaceful overall i know that there's some stories of them you know some natives um acting out with aggression right away but yeah. mo- overall yeah it's like they, strangers coming into your land though it's like you kind of have a right to yeah i think but yeah <laughs> but yes and i mean and from what i was reading in the Pope book it just sounds like Puebloans, their beliefs overall is just to be as at peace with everybody as possible okay. like you know yeah they're not really out looking to fight with everybody um so they were peaceful, they were cooperative overall. And then as the Spanish started getting more settled and more involved with the Puebloans, apparently there was this huge debate back in Spain about if the natives counted as humans and if they had immortal souls. Great. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Like, but are they humans? And they're like, what do you mean they're humans? Yeah, they are. No. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, are. Pe- no. So that's horrible. <gasps> horrible. People in history, it's fun. Yes. <laughs> um, but eventually it was decided that they had souls and therefore it was... They needed this... to be converted. Exactly. You jumped <laughs> yes. in. <laughs> yes, I had a feeling. <laughs> so yeah, because, and for anybody who doesn't know, Franciscans are a branch of Catholicism. So, uh, so anyway, so yeah, so they had the duty to bring them christian salvation which uh, i say that's it's so hard because i'm a christian but yeah, yeah it is hard because 
I mean, I feel like every religion kind of believes the same thing that like everybody should be the same religion as they are, but it's so, I feel like Christianity's or Catholicism is like one of those ones that's like really aggressive with it. Yeah. Historically they were. Yeah. Very much. Um, Yeah. There, you know, I think as we kind of talked about in the Centelese episode, like there's a way to do it and there's a way to not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) The Spanish forcing. weren't quite doing it right. This yeah. <laughs> We're going to deal with a lot more of that. <laughs> um, so anyway, so yeah, time to bring them Christian salvation. So they also would often accuse the natives of Diablo or Devlo- devil worship, mm. even though they had the Puebloans had no concept of Satan and they were very confused whenever this was brought up. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um. After Oñate's expedition, there were more missionaries sent to New Mexico, and the pressure to convert the natives to Christianity just continually increased. In 1609, King Philip III decided that New Mexico should be maintained at royal expense as a missionary endeavor, and everyone living there had the the main purpose of protecting the missions, which actually ended up causing friction between the Franciscans and the secular authorities on who actually held the most power mm, like course. they were you know because the yeah. franciscans were like well this is a religious endeavor so it's us but then the secular powers were like um excuse me but so they often debated on who should get tributes and labor um and who and this was a really weird thing to me so they actually debated about who physically abused the natives more because technically at that time it was actually illegal to like mistreat the natives like you weren't supposed to torture them or abuse them or anything but of course like nobody was really enforcing it i guess yeah well because i was gonna say not that it's okay but it's almost like you're going into a new land so you're like establishing law in like a lawless land you know so it's like Hmm. people are going out there doing what they're gonna do because who's there to stop them the natives that yeah, they're doing they, it too. Yeah, that they don't respect at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, that they were debating if they're even human. And then, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, nobody was really enforcing. So there was this great ideal of like, oh, yeah, we're going to treat them nicely and try to live peacefully with them. But then the people who were actually there were horrible to them. Yeah. Overall. And so anyways, of course, uh, this continual friction where they couldn't even decide who was right and who was leading and all that, and in addition to them mistreating the natives, caused the Puebloans to lose even more respect for them. So, other issues leading to the revolt, um, the Spanish cattle that they brought were allowed to overgraze, which caused a lot of problems for the Pueblo farmers and severe crop failures whenever there was a drought year. And As I've kind of mentioned before, despite the Puebloans being welcoming and peaceful, all the Spanish expeditions and governors seem to bring violent episodes. In addition, so in addition to the other instances I mentioned before, um, under Governor Luis de Rosas, uh, who was governor between 1637 and 1641, uh, he was known for violence and corruption and enslaving the natives for his personal enrichment. And... Under him, the Spanish slaughtered a group of Apaches in the plains east of Pecos Pueblo when they refused to be enslaved. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, refusing right. to be enslaved. That's just so funny. <laughs> right. And that's whenever it was real. It's like being <laughs> enslaved is like something you don't really agree to. You just have, have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, or be killed. I guess, yeah. I guess they just fought harder yeah. than others. I don't know. But, <laughs> um, but not only was that just alone the slaughter an issue, um, it also caused friction between the Pecos Pueblo and the Apaches. They had formally been friendly. They even traded with each other. They were, you know, they had a, a, a working relationship as two tribes. Um, and the Spanish were even aware of this friendship. And they were, but they um, went ahead and did this anyways, which sucked too because the Pecos Pueblo actually would offer a lot of help to the Spanish. Like they gave them guides. They would give them warriors when they needed fighters mm-hmm. and stuff like this. And then the Spanish just turned around and said, oh, well, you know that ally you have, we're going to go try to enslave them. And then they didn't want to. So we killed them, you know? Oh my gosh. So obviously that caused friction between the Apaches and the Pueblo and the Apaches, um, basically like called them tools of the Spanish. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so caused those problems um under so go, later or yeah this would have been later in between 1644 and 1647 governor fernando de arguello Ga, <laughs> caravajal accused leaguers of the walatoa or Hemes pueblo of working with the apaches and navajos and hung 29 of their men as traitors oh my gosh uh sometime between 1649 and 1653 governor hernando de ugarte killed nine men from walatoa nafia and alameda and many from walatoa were sold into slavery for 10 years because the pueblos allowed apaches to take part of the royal herd when the spanish were celebrating holy week my gosh yeah (laughs) it's like not only are they fighting or their enemy but they're turning each other into uh, each other's it, enemies too it's oh horrible. yeah yeah horrible. and so the thing is is that obviously there's all this violence they're ruining the pueblo's crops they're ruining their relationships among each other like yeah. all this stuff um but the primary issue that really led to the revolt was the spaniards disrespect and intolerance towards the pueblo religion mm. like it okay. was primarily about religion okay uh, so the Spanish harassed and persecuted the Puebloans for their traditional religious practices that they had branded as pagan. Um, for example, Governor Bernardo Lopez de Mendizabal and Governor Diego Dionisio de Penalosa uh, made efforts to get rid of the Kachina cult. Unfortunately, I didn't find a whole lot more information on that, but oh. they tried to get rid of this sect of religion. I guess the Pueblan religion. Okay. Um, kind of related to that. Um, so during that time, there was a Spanish-speaking governor named Esteban Clemente of Coray. Uh, Esteban Clemente was his baptized name. He was a native. And he was widely respected Puebloan governor of the Salinas towns. He tried to plan an attack against the Spanish, but was betrayed, caught, and assassinated, which led to three Pueblos abandoning their homes to join the Spanish communities in the area. Oh my gosh. 
He was betrayed um, by like native people. Yeah, because oh, there wow. were there were natives that were loyal to the Spanish that truly well, yeah. were. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that that's part of it too. Sometimes. Yeah, and the Spanish did find many spiritual artifacts in his home. And he had gotten many benefits from working for the Spanish, but he had rebelled for religious freedom because he was mm-hmm. one of the common things. And I think I mentioned this later is that the Puebloans would often outwardly act like they were converted mm-hmm. and act like they were Christian so that they wouldn't get killed or tortured or anything. Yeah. And, but at home in, or in secret, they would still practice their own religion. Yeah. I mean, survival you know yeah exactly um so yeah esteban clemente unfortunately i don't know his native name but that's what he was known as um okay so he did that he so basically the bottom line is he tried to plan a revolt and he tried to do it but it just didn't work out and that kind of calmed there were other attempts as well that just didn't work and so that kind of calmed for a while any attempt like any big attempts to cause a revolt okay um so yeah so in the 1660s franciscan priests of new mexico leaguer um i don't have his name here but he was like the leader of all the franciscans at that time uh, uh, just... he actually <clears throat> 1660s franciscan priests of new mexico leaguer bragged about burning 1600 sacred masks used by the pueblo people to communicate with their gods during ceremonies mm-hmm. Um, the Franciscans would also fill the Puebloan kivas with sand, and the kivas are very sacred underground ceremonial cha- chambers that they use, kind of like their. I guess the be- best comparison would be like their church, kind of. Okay, they worshipped underground. Yeah, like it, it was under underground. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and they, but yeah, they would fill the kivas with sand to try to stop the nightly ceremonies. No. Um, obviously this was sacrilege to the natives, but considered the sacred duty of God to Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, natives were forced to go to mass in churches that were ost- often built with their own forced labor. Oh, gosh. Right? Oh. Like imagine being forced, like basically enslaved to make a church and then they're like, okay, cool, and then go, go, worship. go worship in it. Yeah. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, religion you don't believe. Yeah. See, and that's the issue. Like, like I said, I like I'm Christian, I believe yeah. in God, but yeah. this is this is not the not way. the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing that was mentioned in the Pope book, where it's more the Puebloan perspective, it mm-hmm. mentioned that they just didn't understand how a weekly service could replace their balanced life that's interwoven with religious thoughts and activity. So that's the big thing. Is like for Puebloans, it was so hard too for a lot of them to let go of their religion because religion played a part in every single little thing they did. Yeah. Everything had a prayer to go with it. Everything had a a spiritual being to re- you know, to refer yeah. to for it. Everything. Yeah. Everything had to do with religion. So they were like, and they had this belief that it brought balance into their lives and it brought like this peacefulness into their lives. And then they went from then these people come in with this new religion and a lot of them, you know, even though most like real Christians would argue like, yeah, Christianity should be like that too. Where yeah. God plays a part in your life and everything. Yeah. But, you know, so many people are just like, oh, I went to church on Sunday. I'm cool. You yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But anyways, I'm not here. To, I'm not trying to preach. But anyways. <laughs> 
So just in short, they just didn't understand. Like what they yeah. were being taught was not right. How they were being taught was not right. It was, yeah. But anyways, um, in addition, the years leading up to 1680 had famine, disease, and drought. Uh, it's likely that the Pueblo leaders saw this as a sign that the spiritual beings were unhappy with the Spanish ways, which caused a spiritual imbalance. Because um, basically they again lived a pretty peaceful balanced life before these people come in and all of a sudden everything's falling apart so obviously the gods are angry you know um so yeah spanish intolerance was threatening to remove the pueblo's roots uh and basically as i've been saying this whole time the pueblo revolt was first and foremost a religious restoration they were willing to deal with the political and economic exploitation. They were willing to deal with a lot of stuff. But when it came to them trying to stamp out their religious beliefs, they were just like, yeah, no, absolutely not. This yeah. doesn't work. In addition to all of the religious issues, the Spanish did cruelly exploit native labor and resources, resources which added to the Pueblo's anger. Uh, they had two systems that caused a lot of trouble, which one was the encomienda system where the Spanish forced Pueblo families to quote-unquote donate part of their crops annually to support Spanish missions, military, and civil institutions. And it was usually more than they could afford to part with. So, yeah, I put on on my my little side notes, like, it just sounds like a twisted tithing system. Like, yeah, or like taxes. Taxes, yeah. (laughs) Where I'm like, well, really, that could have been my rent, but okay. (laughs) Exactly. Um, and then there was also the repartimiento system, where natives were forced to work in Spanish homes and fields a lot. It mm. inc- they were actually required to work like a ton of hours a year in- within Spanish homes and fields. Like slaves? Basically. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it wasn't free, or it was free labor, right? You know, and I guess at some points they did technically get paid somehow and i'm doing air quotes over here yeah but even then they said it was essentially nothing like yeah for like pennies you know horrible um so yeah um many natives died from all these issues that they had encountered um and it also and not to mention the physical and mental stress of the religious persecution they experienced it yeah it I know all too well, I'm sure you know all too well, stress can cause severe issues. So. Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and the funny, funny, interesting, not funny, haha, but um, <laughs> the Spanish were aware of a potential uprising, but they weren't willing to admit or fix any of the issues. Uh, Fray Fra- Francisco de Ayeta was head of the Franciscan order in New Mexico in 1680. And he knew of sporadic violent flare-ups between the Pueblos and Spanish since New Mexico was founded. But he failed to report the Puebloans' resentment towards the Spanish, and he didn't seem to even really understand the reasons. Like, when he would kind of mention, like, yeah, they're, they're, I guess they're kind of unhappy. Like, he would say reasons that had nothing to do with what the real issue was. Yeah, I mean, because it worked for them. Yeah. That's why they didn't care to change it. Yeah, exactly. And um which oh, there was a man named Juan Dominguez de Mendoza, who is actually the primary person that's written about in one of the books that I used as a source. Mm-hmm. 
1681, so a year after the revolt, uh, he heard from Pueblo warriors how several Spanish officers were brutal to them and gave them incentive to take up arms. And among them was especially mentioned a man named Francisco Xavier, who was the Secretary of Government and War. And he comes up a little bit more later, too. But despite that, Pueblos were each se like separate nations and not one ethnic, ethnic group. Mm -hmm. The Spanish grouped them together so much, like just said they're all one thing. Yeah. Um, that the younger generations actually felt more of an identity as um, quote unquote Indians. Mm, okay. So they even shared that feeling with the Navajo and Apaches. And Pope used this identity to forge a strong alliance among them all for the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. So who was Pope? So Pope, which either means ripe pumpkin or ripe cultigens, and apparently it was kind of like a common name. Okay. No, nothing too fancy. Uh, but anyways, he was born at Oke Owinge, which again was San Juan Pueblo. Mm-hmm. Around 1630, um, Okeowinga is in the Rio Grande Valley, 30 miles north of Santa Fe. It is also the largest of six Tewa-speaking villages with 2,000-plus tribal members. And it has always been a central political and economic power in the Southwest. So he probably got his name early in life. And I say that because I guess there was a lot of debate about his name for a while. Um, oh, okay. some people, I guess, tried to say that it meant something that had more to do with blood or something. And so they were like, oh yeah, it was just a name he gave himself later. And they're like, no, that was probably his name. <laughs> um, interesting. And what's interesting too is, um, it's, you know, because half the books I used were more of Spanish origin since there's not a whole lot from Puebloan origin. Yeah. Uh, and in there, so his name is spelled like P-O-apostrophe-P-A-Y. And, but a lot of the Spanish spell it almost like Pope, but with a, a accent mark above the E. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So his name, when the Spanish write it, often looks like Pope. But in Spanish, okay. it, it's pronounced Pope the way, mm, <laughs> you know. Okay. So, yeah. But anyway, so his name was probably given early in life. That's his name. And the interesting thing, too, is like you never see mention of a Christian or baptized name for him. So one of the things that the Pobloan, um people that wrote for the book about Pope, one of their speculations is that maybe he just like that was he just maybe cast off his Christian name like he just would not um, accept it. Okay. You know, and so anyways, so. Yeah, he's yeah. only known <laughs> as Pope. Okay. Um, but nothing is really known about his childhood and early life. Uh, it was likely that he was raised like other Pueblo boys with religion playing a part in everything. Um, again, the Pope book talks more specifically about various practices and all kinds of stuff that he would have encountered as a growing boy with religion. Um, there's also no physical description of him oh okay we again there's speculation but there's yeah. actually nothing around that really says what he looked like and there was no like 
pictures painted of him or anything, obviously, right? I guess not. Yeah, like, it didn't mention any of that in the part of the book that I was able to get to. Um, So, yeah, so there's no physical description, very little known about him. And again, this is because everything comes from an oral history. And apparently the people who were passing this oral history from the beginning didn't think that his childhood was a big deal, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, so Pope as an adult, um, there are many rumors about who he was and what he did. And a lot is written, but it was often made by the Spanish. And so, like, one of the things that the Pope book brought up was that you need to kind of think about that. Like, a lot of what we know about him was written by the Spanish. And the Spanish obviously didn't really care for him. Yeah. So we're not sure really how much is true and how much was kind of finagled to make him more of an enemy, like propaganda. Yeah. But anyways, um, so a lot of historians debate if he was a war leader or a religious figure, because it's mentioned of him being both. But the interesting part is that he was most likely a war captain, which ironically is both (laughs) a Mm -hmm. war leader and a religious figure. Okay. So war captains are titular heads of the Pueblo community and part of the Pueblo traditional leadership. They conduct and supervise religious and social social activities of the Pueblo, and they organize hunts, supervise crop and livestock management, and police the Pueblo. Jeez, does anybody else have a job? Right. <laughs> <Besides everything? laughs> yeah, the, he, he he was a big guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as he lived his life, he, of course, watched the Spanish mistreat the Negos and try to force Christianity on them. And this all kind of came to a head when Governor Juan de Trevino arrested 47 religious leaguers from various pueblos, including Pope, in 1675. Uh, Francisco de Guitar, who was a Spanish collaborator, so again, a native working with the Spanish, mm-hmm. okay. identified the men to Francisco Xavier, uh, who I mentioned before. He was a high-ranking Spanish official. Um, Xavier arrested the men and stole their religious articles, herbs, and medicines. Um, Most of the men arrested were Tewas, but there were also Tiwa and Kerasang speakers among them. The men were all taken to Santa Fe, where they were tried, bound, taunted, and abused by the Spanish. Um, Very interesting. Again, you know, that's the best word I can come up with. But Trevino actually sentenced four men to be hanged in very much what sounds almost like a witch it it was a witch trial oh yeah um they were all accused of being sorcerers Mm. who bewitched the po soge or saniel defonso pueblo uh guardian uh frey andres duran his brother his brother's wife and the pueblo's official interpreter And they were also accused of killing seven friars and three Spaniards. So that actually happen? I don't know. They the the books didn't have like they would mention that they were accused of this, but they didn't talk about like what had predated that, like what led to that. Like I couldn't find much. Yeah. But so they were accused of this, and then Mm -hmm. they were sentenced to be hung. Um, 
they were supposed to be taken back to their home village and hung as an example. And forgive my paper. (laughs) (laughs) So three of those men were hung at their homes, which were Walatoa or the Hemes Pueblo, Kutscha, the San Felipe Pueblo, and Nampe or Nambe. Um, all of them were taken home, hung in front of their peers. The last man actually hung himself before they could take him home. He oh. didn't want that, so he just yeah. said no. So the remaining 43 men were imprisoned and publicly lashed in the main plaza at Santa Fe. The But as this was happening, the Tewa Pueblo Leaguers actually went together to Santa Fe, invaded the Palace of Governors, and threatened Trevino to release the prisoners or prepare to fight. Um, Trevino released the prisoners after two Spaniards, Diego Lopez Sombrano and Captain Francisco Garcia, interceded for them. And they only interceded because they sensed the Tewa's determination and he they realized that the numbers they came in, they wouldn't have been able to, they were outnumbered. Oh, okay. Essentially at that point. Yeah. So they were like, hey, no, come on, governor. We got to let these people go. We can't do yeah. this. Oh my you gosh. know? And Trevino, oh my gosh, he was a character. Like he was like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll let your guys go. But you have to promise to like turn away from your like it was like this very theatrical release that he did. But the reality was like no, they just knew they couldn't fight at that point. Yeah. Um, but basically, this whole experience uh unified the natives, and their success in saving the prisoners actually gave them more confidence. Okay. Yeah. In their ability to stand up to the Spanish. And it also united them because they were all, of course, furious over the treatment of their religious leaders. Yeah. Um, so Trevino started this. And then in 1678, Antonio de Otermin became the new governor of New Mexico, while the colony was very obviously on the brink of war. So after all this happened in uh, 1675... Pope was pushed into exile in the Tewa town of Taos in northern New Mexico. And in Taos, he gathered a growing group of Pueblo leaguers who started meeting periodically in the main Kiva to discuss the repression they were experiencing and what to do about it. So most of the men were war chiefs and captains, but there was a group of leaguers called Govern- Governadores, who were not invited because they were put in power by the Spanish and so they weren't trusted. Oh, okay. Um, this conspiracy group started with Pope, a man named Taku, who was a Tewa refugee, um, two men named Saka and Chato. In the Spanish book I read, they were called two local magicians. I don't know oh, what they actually were. <laughs> oh my gosh. Sorcerers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Francisco, just known as Francisco, um, he was a man from San Ildefonso. Okay. Um, as that small group started saying, okay, what are we going to do about this? Um, they just sent out with messengers with two hides that like animal hides 
that had conspiracy symbols painted on them. And they those were taken by messengers to the war leaguers of various trusted pueblos to start recruiting other leaguers to participate in this. Okay. You know, this, this what this is kind of reminding me of. What? I'm sorry if this is a weird comparison, but it's kind of reminding me of On the Walking Dead. Oh, when the all the groups are trying to like they're realizing that they're they might have more power over Negan than because Negan's group is uh, smaller than all the groups combined. That's what it's reminding me oh, of. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't that know. Would, that yeah. would make sense. I I never got that far. In I know. Did, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if I'm ruining no. it for you, but no. that's what it's reminding me of. Hey, I'm sure there's the Walking Dead is a big audience. I'm sure there's plenty of other people. <laughs> yes. Um, it's also often this revolt is often, and I think I mentioned it later, but it's often called the first American revolution. And when you oh, really yeah. compare like the American revolution to make yeah. United States America and this, like there was a lot of similarities. Yeah. It's like, um, one horrible suppressive group over a bunch of smaller groups, but if they combine together, they can mm-hmm. be stronger. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so they sent out these hives, they gathered all these people. So some of the people mentioned were Governor Luis Tupatu of Picuris, a man with the last name Katiti, who was a Karis war chief, and 20 other Tewa captains of war joined. Um, based on the Pope book, Katiti's invite was actually very debated because his brother was loyal to the Spanish. But I guess eventually they decided to take that risk. I don't know what led to that decision, but he okay. ended up playing a big part. Um, the Pope book also has many names listed of the men who were involved. Um, I just didn't, I wasn't able to include them all. Yeah. But anyway, so in all, about 20,000 natives pledged to revolt by the time they had this planned out. The southern Piros villages and Islega Pueblo were left out in fear that they were too integrated with and loyal to the Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, so remember the incident with Trevino happened in uh, 1675. So this took five years to plan. Okay. So after several meetings, Pope stood out with his strong vision and as the most knowledgeable of the men. He was described as having the cunning of a fox and determination and heart of a bear. Uh, He was at that time, he was not arrogant. He was always willing to learn, consider advice and explain his decisions. And he was start and he started to be seen as a leader that they could trust and respect. Okay. Uh, Over time, they started meeting more frequently. And originally they wanted to negotiate better treatment from the Spanish. Like, of course, they wanted to take a more peaceful route at first. But um, increasing issues and actions of the Spanish showed them that they would actually have to drive them out. Um, Mass arrests and executions of religious leaders were becoming more and more common. And they also came to realize that a revolt would have a bigger chance of success at that time because the Spanish were fighting so much among themselves. Mm -hmm. And... The revolt was pushed more by Pope Luis Tupatu and Antonio Malacate, who all knew the Spanish language and officials. So, like, they knew the language. They had knew the people in charge. They talked to them, and they were like, yeah, no, they're not the negotiating type. Like, this isn't going to work. Yeah. 
Um, so anyways, the meetings also, as they became more frequent, became more secret. And the pl actual planning began of the revolt. But we don't know too many details, again, because it was done through oral tradition. And, of course, yeah. they weren't sharing their plans with each other. Yeah. It was <laughs> <Yeah>. a secret. <laughs> we're not saying, we're not sharing stories of what we're going to do before mm -hmm. we're going to do it. So the meetings and how, the, how it was planned and all that, very secret. We don't know exactly what happened. Um, the Pope book does have speculation of how the final meeting would, would have gone including appointing Pope as the leader and August 13th being decided as the revolt date. Okay. Uh, it actually tells a very nice story about how it could have gone just by them knowing Pueblo and culture and how they run those meetings and stuff like that. So yeah. very interesting. And um, I'm assuming cause it was super secret. Like the Spanish had no clue that they were, that these different groups were meeting. No suspect anything. At this point, no. Okay. Um, oh, and I will say there is some discrepancy. Some books say that August 11th, which was the next full moon, was supposed to be the revolt day. Some say August 13th. It kind of bounces around. Okay. As we'll find out pretty soon, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> so Malacate was said to have emphasized that the revolt was not to be bloodthirsty. And if able, they were supposed to allow a peaceful, it, like if the Spanish turned around and said, okay, no, we'll leave by, like, no, Highly don't kill them all. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he was like, hey, I know it's not likely, but <laughs> if they want to leave peacefully, let's not murder them on their way out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pope, though, like, he agreed. He was like, no, we want this to be as peaceful as we can manage. But he was like, but these three guys need to die. <laughs> okay. And that was Francisco Xavier, Luis de, de Quintana, and Diego Lopez Sombrano. And he was like, I want them gone. Yeah. I'm assuming because most of them had to do with the 1675 situation that he endured. Yeah, plus, like, usually if you cut off the head of the beast, then the rest crumbles. Sure. So that's probably Very why, too. True. Yeah. Um, so, again, a little bit of discre discrepancy, but um, they did use these narrow strips of either deer hide or yucca fibers um, with knots in them. The messengers took these strips with knots in them out to all of the pueblos, and the idea was that each knot represented a day. And you okay. would tie untie a knot each day, and then when the last knot was untied, that was when we were going to revolt. Okay, that's the day, you know. So that was the way that they kind of did it, so that it was like a calendar, but not obvious. So okay. Um. Also, uh, after the revolt, there was a Keres Keres from San Felipe Pueblo named Pedro Naranjo who he was captured and told a story of what happened in the Kiva after, um, like when they were planning the revolt, that last meeting. Mm -hmm. um, again, don't know how truthful these people were being when they were captured and interrogated, but yeah. um, he did say that uh, three figures named Caudi, Talimi, 
and Tlemtelume uh, appeared to Popeye with fire shooting from their fingertips. And they said they had gone underground to Lake Copala, which is part of Aztec le- legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and the figures told Popeye to use the cord made of yucca fibers and the knots um, oh, okay. to be the calendar. So other captives also told of the revolt being spread by a representative of Pose Yemu, who is a deity from that known across all Pueblos. He was the son of the sun, uh, created from a piñon nut by World Man in the past. Hmm. So that's one of their deities. Interesting. Uh, so they say that that his representative was going around telling everybody about the revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a, so there is also a story that Popeye murdered either his brother or son-in-law on suspicion of him being a Spanish spy. Uh, cause they were just like trying to emphasize like how secret this had to be. Like he just okay. thought he was a spy and he killed him. Um, again, the book from the Puebloan point of view, they kind of pointed out like if he was a war captain, he couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because actually as a religious leader, I guess you're not allowed and you're not supposed to take a human life. Oh, okay. Even though you're a yeah. war leader too? Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. They like huh. they went more in depth into it. And unfortunately, again, I ran out of time. I couldn't really go in depth into it. But yeah, so I guess he like plans stuff, but he doesn't actually kill anybody. Oh, okay. Um so anyways, Popeye was about 50 years old when the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 took place. And like I said, he led what was con- could be considered the actual first American revolution. So let's get into the revolt itself. Okay. <laughs> Here we go, guys. Here we go. <laughs> so um, basically on August 9th, Popeye found out that some Tongo and Keras natives had betrayed two of the messengers that day. The messengers were captured and interrogated by Othermin, the governor, in Mm -hmm. Santa Fe, and it is said that they spilled most of the information about the revolt, uh, except they probably lied about the date, saying that it was later in the month. Okay. Um, So as soon as Pope heard this, he immediately sent out orders saying, nope, revolt starts now. Yeah, go now. (laughs) it's late it's too late like the cat's out of the bag yeah um again this is kind of where propaganda gets weird uh spanish say that the message may have promised a native wife for each spaniard killed (laughs) which based on what i read about the pabloans from you know their beliefs and everything and what that i don't know if that was really true it sounded a lot more like propaganda on the spanish side like if you kill three spaniards to get three wives yeah which i don't think they were a polygamist <laughs> yeah interesting or is it yeah polyg- I yeah know. yeah <laughs> yeah but anyways so it's possible that was in the message i highly doubt it personally <laughs> <laughs> they're all done and done <laughs> yeah but anyways uh taos rose up the night of august 9th and out of about 70 Spaniards, only two escaped and survived. So they just went to town on it, you know. Oh. And August 
10th in the morning, there were Pueblo men from the Tetsuge, also known as Tetsuke Pueblo. They all assembled on a hill just outside of their village, armed with native weapons. So Franciscan brother Juan, either Pino or Pio, it changed between sources. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he was coming to the Pueblo to league mass with a soldier escort, Pedro Hidalgo, because they had kind of heard word that something was happening. So apparently uh, brother Juan had gone to Santa Fe for the night to be like, I don't want to be here if something happens. Mm-hmm. He comes back. They see that the Pueblo is vacant. There's nobody there. And they found the natives assembled on the hill. Mm-hmm. So the priest, he tried to talk them down in a ravine. Like he said, hey guys, no, come on, let's not do this. You know, in very condescending, like the quote that is in all the books kind of says like, oh, my children, what are you doing? Have you gone mad? Come down here. Let's, let's go to mass. Like, <laughs> let's not do this. Oh gosh. So he gets them to come down to a ravine to talk. He wants to get them to come to mass. And Hidalgo had actually gone around, like, kind of behind them because he was like, I don't don't know what's going on. So I want to kind of keep an eye on the situation. But soon he saw a couple natives come over the hill out of the ravine Mm -hmm. um, with the Franciscan shield and they were covered in blood. Oh, my gosh. So... Hidalgo realized what the heck was going on. So he hopped on his horse and took off. They, the Puebloans did try very hard to capture him, but um, like they were grabbing his horse. They were grabbing him. They were shooting at him, but apparently he made it out. He ended up getting out. Um, At the Sandia Pueblo, the Puebloans vandalized religious images and statues. They pulled down the church bells that called them to work and pray and burned the main church down. Um, they also converted the friar cells into a kiva and hung traditional religious items there of their own. Uh, Santa Fe, of course, was soon bombarded with reports of the revolt. Uh, Nambe Pueblo had two friars, three Spaniards and their wives and children, and the remaining households were all killed. Uh, there was a large Pueblo army at Santa Clara where two friars, two soldiers Two friars and two soldiers were killed, and Captain Anaya's children were abducted. The two soldiers who had escaped Taos got to Santa Fe to tell about the Northern Revolt and their escape. Mm-hmm. Um, on By Monday, August 12th, so we're saying two, three days after the revolt had started, Governor Othermin had a tally of at least 30 killed, mostly children at the Nambe and Posuake. Pueblos. At the eastern Pueblos towards Pecos, four friars, two soldiers, and their families were killed. And at Santo Domingo, three Franciscans were killed. This is what he knew of. Okay. Um, by the time Othermin was getting much of this information, groups of mounted Puebloan warriors were gathering livestock and patrolling the roads. So this may, according to the book, it made Othermin basically powerless to try to save anybody. He was like, nah. I'm just sending people to their death if I'm going to go try to see who's alive. Yeah. So Othermin had the Spanish refugees who had come to Santa Fe gather in the palace of governors and put all weapons and ammunition that were not in use into the royal armory. 
he set up sentinels and riflemen and fortified the building. The Franciscans collected sacred objects and brought them from the church. Livestock were brought in with the people. And even the book I was reading noted that probably stunk. Yeah. (laughs) All these people (laughs) and all this livestock in this place that was not made for this many people. Because the palace was actually filled with about a thousand men and women, along with hundreds of sheep and cattle. Oh my gosh. So they were all very, Cramp. very cozy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So a Tango man known to the Spaniards as Juan Tagno led an army of over 500 warriors from the eastern pueblos to the high ground of Slatskalang suburb around the San Miguel Chapel in the middle of the night. At dawn, Juan paraded on horseback with a scarlet humeral veil, which is like a religious item of clothing. It's like, when I looked it up, it basically looks like a really long, wide scarf. Like it goes over your shoulders and kind of over your arms. And he was dressed and armed like a Spanish soldier. Um, He went into Santa Fe to parlay with Othermin. Juan proposed a choice of either a red cross for war or a white cross for the Spanish to abandon New Mexico peacefully. Othermin countered, saying he didn't want war, um, but if the natives just stopped the revolt, he would pardon them of all their crimes against the Spanish crown. And <laughs> we we'll resume. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. he's like, no, no, we, we keep going with life as usual, but I just won't <laughs> torture you. <laughs> So Juan took this back to his army for consideration, and they responded with ridicule and burned down the San Miguel Chapel. (laughs) Of course. And Othermin attacked the Puebloans almost immediately, and an all-day battle took place in the Santa Fe streets. The Spanish actually got very close to getting a victory because of their military discipline, desperation, and they were better shots with the Arquebus which is an early rifle designed by the Spanish. Okay. Like the Pueblons had taken these from the Spanish that they had killed, but they weren't used to it. So yeah, they uh, weren't as great of shots with it. Okay. Because they um, had mostly what? Like bows and arrows and stuff bows, like that? Bows, arrows, yeah. spears. Yeah. Okay. Um, With the sunset though, came Pope and the Northern Native armies. Mm. So the reinforcements came in. Yeah. They quickly captured the low hill behind the Palace of Governors, where they fired at anyone who even peeked over the parapets, and they cut off the water supply to the palace. No. The Spaniards and their allies held out for nine nights as the natives pillaged and celebrated in the streets and mocked Catholicism. Okay, so after the Spaniards and their allies held out for nine nights to this um, siege, the on August 20th, Othar means the Spaniards, their slap. Scalangs and Casta Comrades all burst out of the Palace of Governors and fought another battle. 300 natives were killed, 1,500 retreated, and 47 were captured. Four Spaniards were killed, and Othermin was wounded in the face and torso. The captives were said to, or the captives said that they fought out of fear of Pope and were ordered to kill all priests, men, and children, but leave women and girls. That's what the Spanish said they said. Um, but Othermin and Anger just ordered all of them to be shot. Okay. So all 47 prisoners were killed. Oh. Uh, so on August 21st, the next day, Othermin ordered uh, everyone to abandon Santa Fe. He decided to retreat. 
He planned to regroup at Isleta Pueblo with many Spaniards, friendly Piros and Lieutenant Governor Alonso Garcia of the Rio Abajo district. Mm-hmm. So Rio Abajo means like lower river. And then there's no, the Rio. Okay. And then Rio Arriba is where Othermin was in charge. So basically, okay. I guess they split New Mexico. So Othermin was more in charge of like he was over in charge of all of it, but he was more focused on the northern part of New Mexico. And uh Alonso Garcia was more in charge of the southern part. Okay. But um, Ultraming expected that Alonso Garcia would be uh, preparing to fight back. So the following days involved many runnings with the natives. Um, they ended up finding at Sandia Pueblo um, that it was deserted. The church was vandalized and partially burnt. And along the way, again, they were shot at by Puebloans and with who had Spanish arquebuses. Otermin responded with 50 soldiers, and when the Puebloans retreated, they um, he ordered the Pueblo to be set on fire. In all, about 15% of the New Mexico New Mexican non-native population was killed, including 21 men- members of clergy. So meanwhile, the Pueblo armies regrouped in the main Santa Fe Plaza and had speakers to give thanks to the great spirit and twin gogs of war, Masawe and Oyoyewe. Mm-hmm. And they gave pep talks to everyone. So they kind of ha- were having like a victory celebration talk. Yeah. Um, Pope was among those giving speeches to tell people this was the time to return to their old traditional ways of life. And in the following days in the Pueblo towns and villages, the warriors performed the bow and arrow dance. I don't know much beyond that, but they all were dancing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Dance. <laughs> yeah. Um, Othermin found Islego Pueblo abandoned. So where he was expecting to find his counterpart, it was, there was nothing. No. Um, but he was told by a captured Pueblo and that Alonso Garcia and the refugees with him had all gone to El Paso. So they were oh, retreating okay. as well. At the beginning of the revolt, uh, Garcia had taken eight men to rescue two officers and some friars at Hemes and Zia Pueblos. A man named Thomas James told at one point how Father Juan Jesus, the oldest priest at Hemes, was dragged from bed and made to carry the Indians before he was cast out to be eaten by wolves. He also said that Akuma's priest was stripped, dragged in the streets by a rope around his neck and then beaten to death with clubs. Uh, Alonso Garcia found all the friars and four more men dead at Santo Domingo, including Agustin de Carvajal and Cristobal de Anaya. They were killed on their farms with their wives and their children. Uh, He found an additional six people killed along the way and he himself was actually forced to take refuge at his home with his six sons, where they were besieged for two days by mounted Puebloan troops. Um, eventually, after that, they fought their way to Isleta. By August 14th, there were about 1,500 settlers at Isleta, mostly women and children. And Garcia held a council with the men-at-arms and the seven surviving Franciscans to explain the situation as he knew it and also gather any additional information that he could. So, um, there was rumors that everyone else in Rio Riba was dead, including Othermin, and Garcia's messengers couldn't get through to them, so Garcia believed the rumors. So he was okay. like, okay, everybody's dead. Okay, fine, let's just go. 
So yeah, of course, the Franciscans were pushing to take the survivors south, and eventually the military officers all agreed to retreat. Okay. They abandoned Isleta and went south to meet a supply caravan that was expected from Mexico City at El Paso. On August 24th, Garcia and the Rio Abajo group reached Piero Pueblo in Socorro, which was less than 70 miles away. On September 14th, Otherming met with captains and officials and League Franciscans. At that time, they had 2,500 refugees and maybe 150 fight-ready men. And, but they decided to continue the retreat and establish a camp a few miles north of El Paso. Um, at this point, it sounds like, I don't know if people did abandon at this point or if they just discovered but apparently a lot of people had said, forget all this. And they had taken off in the middle of the night to go just down into New Spain. Oh, okay. They were like, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. Good idea. <laughs> um, so on that same day, September 14th, Garcia and the Rio Bajo group arrived at the campsite of Fray Cristobal, about 55 miles from the Piero Pueblo. And there, a priest with four soldiers caught up to them with a message to notify them that Othermin and a thousand people had escaped Santa Fe. And the dates are kind of, again, kind of fuzzy here. They may have also met up with Othermin and the group, either on this day or the day before. So basically, the messengers, I guess, weren't that far ahead. <laughs> so yeah. They came up, they're like, hey, we're alive! Like, some of us lived! And then they all got together and... uh decided to again set up a settlement somewhere else yeah so on october 5th the colony senior figures petitioned othermin to establish a permanent settlement across the rio grande from mission guadalupe and othermin agreed and began preparations um at this point pope and the war chiefs traveled around the pueblos with victory and pueblo made rules and orders for the people um, he proclaimed that Kachinas and traditional deities were superior to the Christian God. He ordered to burn churches, Christian Catholic religious imagery, and other items. Uh, people were to stop using their Christian or baptism names. They all tried to cleanse themselves of baptism by washing with yucca root soap, which is said to have proper, powerful spiritual properties. Okay. Um, they were to reject their Christian marriages. Some sources say they were told to abandon their wives. Some said they just had to. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's but some, crazy. some say that they just had to redo the marriage in their native tradition. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, supposedly, anybody who it's broke one way these out rules. Of a marriage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, supposedly, anybody who broke these rules were whipped. Um, a few who wanted to stay Christian may have been put to death. Oh gosh. Um, only, also, only plants that were traditional Puebloan crops were to be planted, and they actually had people burn any Spanish seeds. Like, they tried to get rid of Spanish-related crops. Um, horses that were left by the Spanish were then set free, which kind of nipped them, like, got them in the butt, because then the Apache and Comanches were all too happy to use those for their ringing parties. Mm, yeah. Oh, that kind of, yeah, that kind of went backwards. <laughs> and, of course, he said that they needed to start teaching their children to live a traditional way of life. So, that essentially was the revolt. The results that came from it 
Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Spain's attempt at conversion by the sword failed overall in 17th century New Mexico, mm-hmm. and they were driven out for 12 years. Okay, I was going to ask that. Yeah, they, they did not return for 12 years. Uh, the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 was actually the only successful Native American revolt in North America. Oh. Um, despite Pope, and here's some stuff. Again, this is kind of, I don't know. It came from a Spanish source. We don't know how much was true or how much wasn't. Yeah. But supposedly Pope was trying to erase all things Spanish, but he did also enjoy some of the spoils. Um, there's a story that he had a banquet at Santa Ana Pueblo with the stuff that was left behind by the Spanish and the friars. Um, Alonso Catiti filled his home with Spanish luxuries. Uh, the Pueblo and Navajo leaguers uh, apparently wore fancy religious Catholic clothes sometimes. Oh. And uh, they do say that Pope tried to have each Pueblo pay him tribute. Again, I don't know how true these stories were based on the source. Did they, like, punish the Pueblos that, like, kind of took the Spanish traditions and, like, did become Catholic? Just as long as they didn't, like, convert back or whatever? You know what I mean? You know, yeah, I don't really know, to be honest. I don't know how that that relationship... I From what I've seen, like, in the books, from what I've seen in the books... It seems like a lot of people, a lot of the natives that were loyal to the Spanish, they went with the Spanish. Oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. You know. Uh, But anyways, so supposedly, again, I don't know how true this was or was not, but what the sources say that I found is that, you know, so Pope tried to have the Pueblos pay him tribute and he apparently got really stiff with his rules and this traditional way of like sticking to the traditional ways and stuff uh so the Puebloans were pretty unhappy with his spanish-like tyranny and his influence and presence in history kind of disappeared within the year oh um his former comrade luis dupato actually rose as a leader and began a very long detente process and the Tente is uh, where they try to manage relations with a potentially hostile country to preserve peace and maintain vital interests. Oh, okay. okay. So apparently when Tupatu took over, he kind of was like, hey guys, maybe we should try a more peaceful deal. Yeah, since that's what we were fighting for in the first place. Yeah. Um, so in 1681... A year after the revolt, uh, vice the viceroy actually of New Spain ordered Othermin to repossess New Mexico. Supposedly, he took 147 soldiers, burned something that was unimportant. That's literally what it said in the book I was reading. <laughs> and tried to show um, power that they didn't have. Okay. Um, again, the Puebloans gave a quote-unquote show of strength and Othermin gave up and went home. Yeah. In 1683... Othermin was replaced, but many of his successors didn't want to even try reconquering New Mexico. Um, at some point, Luis Tupatu actually sent an embassy to Othermin in, oh, in the summer of 1683 in El Paso. Tupatu told his envoys that they had run out of pretty much all their supplies, and they were supposed to tell the Spanish that they would be well received if they wanted to return. The Spanish... When they arrived, threatened to torture one of the ambassadors, and 
In fear, he spilled all of the Puebloans' issues, including his personal fears about the Pueblos' inability to defend themselves. Apparently, Ute Raiders had killed 20 Taos Puebloans, Alonzo Catiti had taken almost all the sheep, and most of the livestock had been eaten, and Apache, Apache Raiders had taken the rest. Oh my gosh. It's almost like, too, because it's almost like kind of pointless, because what did this New Mexico even have to offer for them? Dirt? Like I was saying yeah. earlier, it was like, yeah. you're going to come back to fight for what? Yeah. Which, yeah. But in, so like I said, they were gone for 12 years, but in 1692, Diego de Vargas led 300 men into New Mexico and soon reported to the Viceroy of New Spain that he won a bloodless reconquest of the Puebloans. Oh. He had a church built immediately. Um, he says by soldiers. I'm wondering if it was really yeah. soldiers. <laughs> yeah. Enslaved soldiers. <laughs> Um, 70 families got to Santa Fe in December to repopulate the area. And at that point, Santa Fe had actually been transformed by the Puebloans into a Pueblo apartment-like complex. So it looked very different than when they left it. Yeah. Uh, within days after what Vargas thought was a peaceful reconquest, he found out that the Tewas, Tanos, and Picaris, uh, planned an assault. It resulted in a bloody battle with 70 Puebloan prisoners executed and 400 enslaved. He ended up having to put down rebellions in Jemez, San Cristobal, Nambe, and Santa Clara over the next year. By New Year's Eve of 1693, the Spaniards were ready for a new start and had finished hasty construction of a roof for the San Miguel Chapel. Uh, but, so, by 1693, they were established again back in New Mexico. But okay. it was a successful revolt in driving out the Spanish, and they had 12 years of that now on the better or positive outlook mm -hmm. um the new mexico pueblos because of this were able to preserve their traditions and way of life to modern day okay. like this allowed them time to reestablish their traditions reestablish their life because even though they came in and kind of reconquered it actually made it pos this revolt like i guess forced the spanish to kind of give the pueblos up more respect than they had before okay i'm sure they still had issues that I'm was sure gonna say to an had, extent yeah. yeah yeah to an extent yeah but it did make it possible for the spanish and native communities to eventually live overall a peacefully and equal existence and it crossed over to when it was mexican settlers and then american settlers okay um, it allowed for a unique situation where they have been able to mostly keep mostly keep their land, languages, traditions, and religion with minimal outside influence. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, in 2005, a marble statue of Pope was placed in the National Statuary Hall in the United States Capitol, Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. The hall was created by Congress in July of 1864 to allow each state to provide two marble or bronze statues of people who have passed on who were citizens and illustrious for their historic renown or distinguished civi civic or military services. Apparently it was a very long and hard process to get the statue there. The Pope book that I mentioned, actually half the book is about that whole process. Oh. And um, it was the statue of Pope was the New Mexico's second statue, first being of Senator Dennis Chavez, 
who was the first Hispanic born to, in U.S. to serve in Senate, and he did a lot of civil rights work. But anyway, so the second statue was Pope, and it was actually the last statue to be placed in the collection of the original 100. So yeah, um, that is the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. A lot of history I just learned about my own state. <laughs> I know I've heard like summaries of it, but I've never heard like that, that in depth about it. Right, and that's the thing. Like we we learned about it at least mm-hmm. twice in school. I don't know yeah. if everybody gets that, but for sure in New Mexico, you learn about it t- yes. twice, like in middle and high school. Yeah, and but. They never went this in depth with it, at least for me. I don't, yeah, I don't remember any of it, to be honest. Sorry, guys, for the long story, but (laughs) I thought it was going to be a simple little deal because of what I had learned and found out it is a much more complex situation. Yeah, really (laughs) complex. But anyways, thank you all for listening. I'm sure we're more than excited to get into Chelsea's fun, spooky (laughs) continuation (laughs) Yeah, but I liked your first story that didn't... I mean, you had one other story that didn't have ghosts in it, but... Well, I talked about ghosts, but yeah, I didn't have ghosts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's get into my story. Yay! All right, guys, so now I'm going to talk about part two of Peggy the Doll. And I don't know if you remember where we left off last time, but we left off when they were at the the goal doing their first public event with Peggy letting people interact with her that's where we left off so again just a refresh a goal is like a prison basically that they had turned into a public event space so when they arrived at the goal um, a CCTV monitor was filming inside of the condemned cell where Peggy would be all night. Um, Ian and Paul, uh, who helped with the event, were set up talking boards in the next cell. Which I don't know if you know the difference between like a, po- a talking board and a Ouija board, which I didn't. Is basically that a talking board is homemade. Um, and it's not necessarily a Ouija board. It's a little bit different. It has like different, basically whatever you put on it in order to okay. communicate with spirits. Um, they put Peggy in her place and left her alone to settle in uh, so that she could get used to the spirits and stuff of that were already there in the place. Jane said that they were when they were in the cell next door, she crouched down to set up some trigger objects and Paul asked the talking boards if anyone was in the room with them. Uh, Jane at that moment said that she felt someone push her back as though to make her lose her balance. She exclaimed that she felt that and that um, they all went to Peggy's cell to see like if Peggy was doing anything. And they all smelt the smell of roses, which was the first time anybody said that about being around Peggy. But then she said, as soon as that smell, like they were all like, do you smell like fresh roses? It kind of just disappeared at the same time, Hmm. which is, I don't know what that's about, but that happened. (laughs) Uh, As guests arrived, they gave them the history of the location along with ghost stories from the location. And then they started to let the guests enter the cells. Uh, this was there was so much excitement from the guests to finally get the chance to see Peggy in in, in person 
and then also to talk use the talking boards to communicate right away one of the first things that the talking boards did was spell out a word it spelled out the word peggy clearly this spirit uh, that was in the doll was excited to have such a big audience because remember Peggy liked attention and if you didn't give her attention she kind of threw a fit <laughs> and she was getting a lot when Jane rushed into the room to see what was going on a name a guest named uh, Letitia Hemmings was rushing out saying that she felt like the spirits didn't want her in there um <clears throat> what I liked about this book that I read that Jane wrote the basically the guardian of peggy is that she would take statements of people who had experiences with peggy mm -hmm. so that it was like kind of like first-hand accounts so in letitia's statement she said that when they were speaking to peggy she was sitting across the room from her and peggy was answering everyone's questions but when she asked a question it told her to leave so she did right away and i was like Imagine if that happened to you, like everybody's asking this ghost questions and then you ask and she's like, get out of here. <laughs> and you're like, okay, bye. <laughs> I would probably do the same thing, just leave. And then she left for a while, but then she did decide to come back. And when she came back this time, she sat right next to her and heard a weird, uh, had a, <clears throat> this is kind of like a trigger warning too for, uh, I guess sexual assault, I'll, I'll call it. But basically when she returned, she had a weird burning sensation happening between her legs and she left because she's like, I don't know what that's about. And when she left and came back, she said that she had like this vision of a woman being raped, um, which I don't know where that came from. It's never really like, mentioned again but it's it's interesting that like somebody had such a horrific event happen to them when they visited peggy um she then asked peggy if she could touch her and peggy said no and then told her to get out so she did <laughs> peggy just i don't know what caused this incident and also for her to just kept telling her to leave but it's very it's a very interesting event to occur yeah. um during the evening in all of these sessions, the CCT, CCTV footage caught a shadow by Peggy. Um, when playing with the lighting and stuff, they couldn't find what would have cast that shadow. So they're assuming that the shadow is probably whatever is haunting Peggy. And then that's pretty much all that happened at that event, which they were kind of shocked that not much more happened. But she, Jane said, she's like, I mean, to be honest, that one thing that happened to that one lady was event enough. Yeah. Um, and then in April of 2015 was when producers reached out to Jane and asked her, hey, have you ever heard of the show Ghost Adventures? These producers <laughs> worked for none other than Zach Baggins. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. <laughs> uh, and he was they told her basically he's working on a new show and they said that Zach heard about Peggy on the Daily Mail and that he was intrigued with its popularity and wanted to bring her on the show uh, with Katrine Redick which I don't know if you remember her but she's the one who saw footage didn't even meet Peggy but saw footage of Peggy and had a heart attack That's oh yeah okay 
Zach was intrigued by that story and he wanted to basically bring Peggy onto his new show he was creating and also kind of have a uh, reunion with her and Katrine. Uh, So, um, of course, Jane was excited to have uh, Peggy on the show because she thought it would bring attention to the story of Peggy more because she only had so big of an audience and obviously Zach is one of the biggest people in the paranormal industry unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) yes because he's very I mean my personal opinion he's very like I don't know I kind of think he's a joke but whatever (laughs) that's just my personal opinion I could go off but we've already taken a lot of time (laughs) Uh, so after finally coming to an agreement uh, to film, filming was set for December 7th. She was kind of like going back and forth with production because she's like, well, Christmas is coming and one of my children's in a play and I want to be there for it and all this stuff. So finally they agreed, okay, we'll do December 7th then before all that stuff happens. So Jane and her husband, Simon, booked a flight to go overseas and meet Zach in Vegas. Something told Jane that having Peggy on a flight with her and a bunch of other people was not a good idea. So she trusted the postage system and had Peggy shipped ahead via mail. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Which she said was super scary because she's like, I'm sending this doll who's like very like something super serious in my life and that and other people's lives. I don't want her to get lost. Like, God forbid, Peggy the doll gets lost in the mail. But she trusted it. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like a panic attack waiting to happen. Yeah, which she was <laughs> like, I was just watching the tracking. And then finally, I saw that she, because she booked a hotel in Vegas, and she saw that Peggy arrived ahead of time and that she was placed in their hotel room in Vegas. And so she's like, cool, let's go to Vegas. And then her and Simon get to Vegas, which, you know, they're not from here. They're from England. So it's like they've never experienced Vegas before. So when they first got here, they were like walking around, seeing all the lights and going to restaurants and stuff. And she's like, it was kind of ominous thinking like we're experiencing this really cool thing right now, but we're about to go to our hotel room where Peggy's waiting for us. So that should be fun. Yeah. (laughs) And then she said that they were given a location to meet up for the filming. And a lot of the times, especially with sets that are like brand new or they're still kind of being developed it, like you arrive and it kind of looks like nothing. And you're like, Oh, this is where we're filming. It looks like an abandoned building basically. Mm -hmm. But she said that she pulled up um, on the first day of filming with Peggy in the trunk and they got out and production was kind of looking at them like, uh, where's the doll? And she's like, don't worry, it's in the back. I'll go get it. <laughs> so she pulled Peggy out and they're like, so Zach is very sensitive when it comes to haunted objects and stuff. You know, he's very drama. So they're yeah. like, let's put him in this suitcase. And just like everybody else who meets Peggy in per- person, they don't expect her to be that big. So she didn't fit in this suitcase that they wanted her to be in. So they were like, okay, you know what? We have this black bag. Let's just put this bag over her head. And Jane was like, okay, sure. So she puts this bag over Peggy's head. And then um, they just kind of explained, they're like, we're not sure how he's going to react. Because I'm sure you've watched some of his stuff. And it's, it is very dramatic. I don't yes. know how true his 
feelings and stuff that he gets are, but he, it's very dramatic. So since Zach had heard, you know, people literally had heart attacks without even seeing her in person, he was like, let's just, I don't want to see her right away. So when they brought Peggy into the uh, museum, uh, Jane said that she was actually impressed with the architecture and design of his museum, which I've never seen it in person. I've obviously watched the show a couple of times just for this case too. I did watch this episode too. And it is really impressive. I've always wanted to see this museum. If I ever get the chance to go to Vegas, I will see it, even though it seems kind of scary because it's full of haunted objects. But yeah, they lots of prayers, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I know that that's one thing that people do admit a lot. Even people who don't like Zach Baggins, they always say that his museum is very well done. It is. It, it's like funny too, because I had done um, in my other podcast, I used to do an episode that kind of mentioned him because of the Warrens, you know, Ed and Lorraine yeah. Warren. And they, for while they were alive, they're like, we don't want Zach to have any of our stuff in his museum. Like, no, no, no. But then they died and then he got a lot of it. So <laughs> there's a lot of that <laughs> stuff there too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but Zach hadn't opened the museum to the public yet, but he had already accumulated at this point a very impressive collection. Uh, when the filming began, they had Jane um, holding Peggy walking down a long hallway to a bookcase that, to her surprise, opened. And inside, she entered a room with two large chairs um Zach sat in one Jane sat in another and then there was like a small children's chair where Peggy sat down across from them still with the bag on her head <clears throat> um Aaron Goodwin who's uh part of the Ghost Adventures team he was the cameraman so it was them three and Peggy in the room this was the first time that Zach was meeting Peggy and it was clear to Jane, she could just tell he was extremely uncomfortable, which is kind of known to that one of Zach's biggest phobias is dolls. Oh, so, lovely. Yes, which is interesting because he has a room full of them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> during the interview, Jane could just tell that Zach grew increasingly uncomfortable as she was telling him the story. And Zach kept hinting at taking the bag off of Peggy's head, but he kept holding off. And in between takes and stuff like that, the bag stayed on her head the whole time, but she could just tell like Zach was growing more and more uncomfortable. And she even said that she, for a while, she thought maybe he's not even going to have me take it off at all. Cause like, that's how intense his behavior was. Yeah. Um, while filming when Zach suggested that possibly Peggy didn't like all this attention, a bunch of flies suddenly appeared. Oh. Which is weird because Zach was like, I've never seen a fly in this room before or in this museum before. And then Aaron even made a um, comment where he was like, I don't think I've ever seen a fly since I've been in Vegas at all. So... Mm -hmm. Zach kind of hinted he was like I've seen flies before in situations of demonic possession and Jane said that she kind of felt uncomfortable when he said that because she I don't know if you remember from the last episode but she was like I don't think it's demonic I don't I just don't think that's what it is mm -hmm. um, but it was funny because the flies that were there were super invasive and they specifically kept like going around Zach 
Zach's head and like landing on his face and stuff. So he ha- kept having to like swat him away. Peggy's like, how dare you try to take my attention away? <laughs> She's like, you're wrong. Give me more attention. Yeah. Um, and then they the flies eventually got way too intense and they had to stop filming so that they could get the flies out, basically. Um, so they took a break and when they came back, Zach finally decided, okay, it's time to remove the bag from Peggy's head. And right when he did, or right when he said that, uh, Billy Tolley, who is just one of his camera operators that like sits in the room in the back where all the cameras are and all the equipment and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, He said that every room in the museum, because they have cameras throughout the whole museum, were still running, except for that one camera right when he said that shut off. So they were like, I don't know what that's about, but they finally got it working again. And then Zach said, okay, time to remove the bag. But he told Jane, and it wasn't on the show, but he told her, like, make sure when you take her the bag off of her head, she's not looking at me. Like, I want her looking somewhere else. <laughs> he was not prepared to look her Peggy in the eyes. So she did. And... They did the interview and then Jane was asked to leave at this point was when they brought Katrine in and um, in the book, Jane said that she never really spoke to her about the interview or what happened. So she didn't even know what happened until the episode aired, but obviously I watched it. So basically Peggy wasn't even in the room when he brought her in because he felt like it would be too much. So he just brought her in and talked to her about her experience. And she was just so distraught. She started crying on camera. She's like, I've Mm -hmm. never felt this way before in my entire life. I don't know what it is about this doll or what's going on with her. But obviously I had a heart attack and nobody can necessarily link that to her. But I feel like something that triggered just made that happen. Yeah. And she kind of like what Zach insinuated to on the episode was that he wanted to bring her there so that hopefully they, she could confront it. And then also hopefully like sever whatever bond there was there. That was obviously like a negative bond. So when um, Katrine was done, she came out and sat with Jane and Simon and they were just in the back, just talking while whatever was happening they weren't sure what was happening and they were actually the producers came out and they're like hey actually can you like wait outside so they took them outside and Jane's like that's super weird like I wonder what's going on and they were outside for a whole hour and basically if you watch the episode it kind of shows Zach like having one of his freakouts I guess like you know how he gets like angry and he starts like kicking stuff and just like saying I, again, I don't know how I feel about Zach and his experiences. I don't, I don't know. But Aaron, the cameraman, his friend was like, you know, maybe you should take a second because I could just feel like the anger and rage coming off of you. So he took a break while they made these people wait outside for an hour. And then when they brought them back in was then when they came to a room where they had set up a seance. So they had like candles and stuff going on and uh, patty uh negri i think that's how you say her name she's a very popular medium who zach uses a lot was basically gonna be in charge of the seance 
and she was sitting at the head of the table. Um, this was where Jane was asked to place Peggy in a chair, but again, she had to make sure it wasn't facing Zach. So she did so. And then Zach apologized for the delay, saying that his experience with Peggy just gave him feelings of rage and anger. When they were settled down and ready to begin, that's when Zach left the room and tried to bring in Katrine. He was like, I feel like this is the perfect opportunity for you to finally come in face to face with this doll and we could try to sever these ties. So she was obviously really terrified to go through this but she agreed to it she's like okay yeah I, I think it's a good time for me to come face to face with whatever this is and Zach told her point blank he's like you can leave at any time if you feel uncomfortable that's totally fine and I feel like I'm uncomfortable now bye <laughs> I've been uncomfortable since before I even met her but thanks <laughs> um and then during the seance basically uh it was interesting but um there were candles set up all around the room, but specifically the candles that were right behind Peggy were doing like a dancing thing where it, it almost looked like it's if, as if somebody, you know, was running their hands on top of it and it made the flame like dance kind of, but it was uh, like literally one at a time in a row and no other candles in the room were doing this. Hmm. And then also there was a typewriter in the room, which I'm sure it's haunted because it's haunted museum, but it was making like clicking sounds and like you could kind of hear it in the background. And even the people in the room were like, do you hear those typewriting sounds? And then they're like, oh yeah, there is a typewriter back there. And it was behind Peggy as well. So, uh, and then Jane and Katrine both experienced rocking of their chairs as though like something was moving beneath them. Like Jane explained it, it almost felt like an animal was going under her chair. And she kind of like, pointed it out and said that Zach said oh yeah I can actually see your guys' chairs moving that's weird <laughs> I kind of felt like I felt an animal beneath my chair just now. I thought it was one of my cats nothing's there scary yeah. hopefully Peggy's <laughs> not visiting you she better not please uh, and then patty made a comment and said that there were two spirits in the room which is often with peggy around that um one's a female spirit that's a little bit lighter and then a dark male spirit patty said that she felt um like she was losing air as she's describing it and could barely talk as though the spirits didn't want her to speak of them and then zach turned to katrine and he asked her do you mind staying in the room alone with Peggy? We'll be all right outside of the room just so you can get closure. And she was like, no, you me? asshole. <laughs> She's like, is that a joke? And he's like, I just feel like it's a good idea. And Patty was like, it's okay. We'll be right outside. Like if you need anything, we'll be right out there. So she did it. She stayed in the room. They all left. And after she just kind of, she literally sat there in silence, but you could see because they recorded it. Like she looked like she was just super distressed the whole time. Like she was scared. I think if I'm not mistaken, there might've been a cameraman in the room, but I don't know. I couldn't tell if it was like a camera that was set up or not. But basically after a while, she's like, okay, you guys could come back in. And then they came back in and she just said that she felt like overwhelmed. So then they finished the seance. Um, and then what Jane said was the weirdest thing 
was before she left she stopped and like gave peggy a hug and then that was that that was the vegas experience you need to learn to say no <laughs> yeah and i've That's never obviously like experienced yeah i've never experienced anything like that obviously like at all haunting me through me even just seeing a picture of her but i don't know how i would feel about like severing ties like i i get where they were coming from to an extent but like at the same time it's like there's sometimes like lines you shouldn't cross with that kind of stuff yeah no i don't know. I... <laughs> yeah no that was all for publicity i feel like yeah no, i mean obviously no... he when he said that when i was watching the episode i was like oh he's like what now you want to be left alone what Crazy. <laughs> yeah so for a while after during the holidays things were calm again and jane at first thought she was like i kind of felt like maybe after the experience that we had with Zach and that medium and everything that we went through, that maybe the spirits that were attached to Peggy had either passed or just stayed at the museum. She's like, I felt like everything was kind of good. Yeah. Um, however, on February 27th, that's when things changed. Um, Olivia T- Taylor, a paranormal investigator um, with Rambrin investigation services reached out so she reached out to jane and she's like hey i was wondering if i could do a vigil with peggy alone and jane knew she needed to meet this person in person first because she's like i don't know how i feel about that like things have been calm but i don't like why does she want to have this vigil alone with peggy kind of intrigued her a little bit yeah so Olivia said that she saw news articles about Peggy and her effects on people. So she set set out on research and she kind of wanted to possibly debunk this situation or solve who this Peggy was and why she haunted her, the doll, so intensely. Um, And her research, Jane said, was actually pretty impressive for somebody who's never even met Peggy in person. But Jane still needed time to think. She was like, I... We kind of went through what we've been through and we did the Zach thing and things are calm right now. So she's like, you know what? We want to poke the bear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's like, but this lady, this Olivia was super insistent and she did her research. So she talked to Simon about it and both of them kind of agreed that they would let her maybe do this if she got a health check first. Because she's like, I want her to go see a doctor, get her EKG, get her, all that stuff done to make sure she doesn't have any heart problems or whatever because I don't want anything to happen mm-hmm. and so she said while this was happening Hazel the original medium that they worked with at the beginning who kind of helped come up with the spirit named Peggy too reached out to her for the first time in a while and she asked how things were going with Peggy and Jane kind of told her about the potential overnight seance that this girl wanted to do alone with her and Hazel said that she had a dream about it and she's hmm. like really you did and she's like yeah someone whispered in my ear during this dream that just said wait and see what i could do oh and so <laughs> yes even though it was strange jane like kept telling her you know are you sure you want to do this there's this these things have happened there's risks to it but olivia insisted that she was still ready to go and she and so they decided to go ahead with it 
after her health check was clear, everything was fine. And then Jane was like, let's choose a neutral location that has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with you. So that like, if something does happen, it doesn't linger, whatever. So they chose a hotel that was close to both of them, kind of in case something happened. And she, Jane and Simon went into the hotel room before Olivia arrived and provided her with um, equipment like, you know, EMF detectors. And she even provided her with holy water and then left um, Olivia there with Peggy with the rule. She told her, like, I'm going to let this happen, but I just have one big rule is please do not touch her. Just leave her in that chair that I left her in do what you're going to do, but just let's, let's keep it at that. Don't, don't touch her. And Olivia agrees. She's like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So she was there between 8 30 PM until 2 33 AM, which is about six hours of time. When she called distress to Jane for help at 2 33 AM. So <clears throat> this is what happened in those six hours okay. for the first three hours not much happened, she said. She's like, I was sitting there two, three hours, you know, trying to communicate. There was a, a couple of fluxes in temperature. Everything was kind of normal. Then around 2 15, 12, 15 a.m., <clears throat> Olivia asked Peggy questions and started to feel a tingle on her arm. And she was like, I've never felt anything like that before. I didn't really know what it was. Maybe it was the temperature change. So she said she went into the bathroom and ran warm water on her arm to try to stop the tingling and then she said it didn't really help so she went and like sat on her arm and it calmed it down a little bit but then she said then the tingling wouldn't stop she said that she got up and went to Peggy and asked her are you doing this like I don't know what's happening I've never felt anything like this before and then she said the next couple hours after that were a blur she says that she kind of feels like she blacked out and she only remembers bits and pieces of what happened until she basically woke up <clears throat> or she remembers somehow during all this that she had managed to call Jane. She doesn't remember the conversation um, at all. And like after talking to Jane, she basically woke up to paramedics coming into her room, taking her to the hospital. And what they told her at the hospital is that basically during that time that she blacked out is she like lost oxygen to her brain. So she initially, she, she had a stroke Oh, gosh. is what happened. And like I said, she's never experienced anything like that before. No history of anything like that. And she even had that health check before. Yeah. Pretty interesting. So <clears throat> April 16th, 2016, was when the My episode birthday. oh yeah <laughs> happy birthday <laughs> the episode of deadly possessions aired that they okay. did on peggy so before this jane had saw which this is really interesting for zach to do but she saw an interview with zach prior to this happening because peggy had a big following and this episode was about to air i think it was episode like three or four of the show so it had already had a couple episodes and Zach did an interview where he claimed that when he interacted with Jane they're just really bad vibes and she was like what I felt like it went okay but okay 
And then he almost insinuated that he's like, you know, sometimes when people have possessions like this that are haunted, sometimes they do dark stuff with it. They do witchcraft or something dark with the doll. And she was like, are you kidding me? Right. Uh, I was like, actually kind of shocked that that happened because Jane was like, look, I have children. I grew up like in a Catholic home. I would never, ever, ever do anything like that with anything. She's like, I didn't know there are risks and stuff. She's like, I just couldn't believe that he was insinuating that I would do something like that. Yeah. It was kind of weird, which considering the fact, because I kind of mentioned this in episode one, like Peggy's there now with Zach, the fact that he would kind of talk shit about her, but then still interact with her. Interesting to me. Interesting, which I mean, I have my own feelings about him, but yeah. Yeah. So then after the episode of Deadly Possessions aired, the internet blew up. There were so many tweets and comments on the newly created uh, Peggy Facebook page because they had their own Facebook page for their business. But people were like, can you just create a page just for Peggy so we could just talk about her? And she's like, okay. So she did. And people were just talking about their experiences they had, weird more medical stuff happen and all that stuff but Jane's heart sank the most when she saw that Katrine had suffered a stroke and went to the hospital after watching the episode which is crazy because she didn't have that experience after actually meeting Peggy in person it was specifically after she saw the episode huh um and then Patty Negri said that she would try another experience to get that tie broken and get that clean bond or that bond clean between the two of them you need to just leave that poor woman alone well she's (laughs) the not that i blame no victim shaming here but she's the one who keeps watching and looking at this stuff and it's triggering whatever medical stuff she has going on like she needs to quit but like everyone else needs to also leave her alone yeah yeah true true (laughs) Um, so at the end of April, a request was made for Jane and Peggy to go on another show or sorry, Peggy wasn't invited to the show, but Jane was invited to basically be interviewed about Peggy. Mm-hmm. And it's um, a show. Um, oh, it's a French show. Sorry, it was I forgot what it was, but it was a French show. So it was kind of in French, but it um, it was by this guy named Anton Decanes for his show called Lemissions D'Anton, which is basically like a Euro trash show, is what Jane called it. It's kind of like it's kind of like she said because she knew what Euro trash is, and she's like, I didn't know how I felt about it because basically it's like a show where you go on, and even if it's a serious subject, they kind of like mock it, which kind of made me think of like, um jerry springer type stuff you know kind of kind of ish um but at this time simon was in the middle of stuff and he didn't have time so she went alone um she said that she was super hesitant to do the show because like i said she knew how these shows could be but she was promised that they would take the story of peggy seriously which she was like i don't really know how it's gonna go but let's see so she goes and she says like he like starts the show like dressed as Elvis and she's like okay is this gonna be a joke <laughs> like what's happening and then but right before he interviewed her 
he changed into just a regular suit and she's like okay and he kept promising her like no I really I take this seriously because I'm really interested in Peggy and just doing an interview so we could get questions or answers questions answered that my guests have or my watchers have and all that stuff and so she's like okay and she's like I didn't really not much happened during this but I just wanted to put it in the book because what was crazy about it is that during the interview when they put a picture of Peggy on the screen was when the host Anton was getting like invaded by flies oh, again flies again okay. yeah and she was like that's weird but she's like I thought I would throw that in there because he even said he's like we've never had flies on the show before and there he was like swatting flies away the whole time and then after that they had um also agreed to event uh, to host an event by spooky spook spook hmm. it's s-p-o-o-u-k so it's like uk's hmm. okay television um host ian roger ian grant rogers and nadine english um they had to host basically it was an event that they were going to put on with peggy there um but they had an uh, event space set up but they last minute they said they couldn't do it there anymore so they set it up at um a venue called molly o'grady's and it was planned to have four cctv cameras um set up in a small room and they would allow guests basically to have like 10 minute minute lone vigils with peggy and jane said that she had planned this event before the stuff even happened with zach so she's like if all of that stuff hadn't happened i probably wouldn't have agreed to this but i already had guests had paid for their tickets it was already set up so it finally came time to do this event and she said that during this event, the cameras did capture capture strange things happening, including orbs and people having headaches and then people claiming that they um, were touched randomly during their um, lone vigils. And then Charlene Lowe Kemp from Project Reveal um, was also there, showed Jane that she was trying to film Peggy. Like she was like, look at what's happening. I'm trying to film her. And the camera was like, zooming in on peggy's face on its own oh and she was like i literally was watching it happen with my own eyes and she's like i've never seen a camera do something like that mm-hmm. and then after a few experiences and interactions they all packed up and left she's like not much really happened i mean some people experienced little things that thing happened with that camera and then that was like the last event that she really did um with the public with peggy um after having guardianship over peggy for so long they started wonder starting to wonder when it would finally be time to give her up time for her to move on and then get rid of this from her life and her family uh they reached out to philip lolly who was a private spiritualist to see if he could possibly get him a few answers before they did this on June 1st, they met with him at his home with a group of other spiritualists in training. So basically, they he wanted to help them maybe get a few answers before they moved on from her and then have these spiritualists in training get experience too with something he knew he was like, they're going to experience something. So <clears throat> they all sat in a circle and joined hands. And Jane said that she didn't feel comfortable with really anybody else holding Peggy's hand. So she decided to hold 
her hand during this event. And she's like this, to be honest, out of all the years that I had her, this was the first time I ever held her hand. And she said when she held her hand, she felt like an electric shock, like kind of like a static shock. And she like jumped and she's like, when I jumped, it like scared everybody in the group too. And she's like, I didn't mean to do it, but she's like, I could tell people were looking at me like, uh, she's just trying to spook us. But she's like, I swear I was not. <laughs> yeah. And then she said, finally, she held her hand again. Um, and Philip said the she's like at first I didn't know what he was saying because he said it in Latin, but I learned later he said the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Mm-hmm. And then they all sat in silence. Jane said that while they were sitting there, she saw this weird light in the middle of the group that no one else seemed to see. And she saw it kind of move throughout um the event and nobody nobody else saw it she's like i was looking like uh is anybody seeing this but nobody said anything so she's like okay um and then one of the women in the group claimed she's like oh i feel like a cold breeze like it's got cold in here all of a sudden and in response philip closed his eyes and stood up which scared everybody too they're like what why is he standing and he said with the person carrying the pouch of salt please please remove it from your pocket and they were all like looking at each other like what who has salt in their pocket but jane said she was like it's actually pretty common for people to carry salt in their pockets when they're experience going through haunted experiences like this because it's kind of a form of protection so then he repeated again with the person carrying the pouch of salt in their pocket please remove it and then a guy in the circle kind of took the pouch out of his pocket and ashamed put it behind him on like a table that was behind him and she's like i don't know if i necessarily claim this as something like spiritual that philip had done because again it is very common but she's like it was interesting though Mm -hmm. and then a ball of light appeared above them for a few seconds that everyone saw and nobody in this group could explain what they saw because they'd never seen something like it even simon jane's husband was there and he was even like i've never seen anything like that before that was crazy it just was a ball of light in the center of them and and then it just like was there for a few seconds and then it just disappeared Mm -hmm. and they were all and jane said too that she was like i even researched trying to figure out like it wasn't like an orb you know because usually orbs too you don't see unless it's like on the camera footage after where she's like, I couldn't figure out what what it was. Um, and then after this, that was finally the last thing that she did with Jane. Uh, so finally, she decided it was time to let go, mostly, as Jane put it, for the safety of her family. Mm-hmm. In an almost as if by fate, in January of 2017, Zach emailed asking how Peggy and the family were doing. She knew where this was leading, and she asked to speak to him on the phone about it. They chatted and he said he wanted to bring her to his museum into a room he had especially made for her. Jane was hesitant and asked for time to think about it, but she was like, I kind of like for a while have been wanting to get rid of her anyways. And I felt like possibly giving him her to Zach who has experience with haunted items was maybe just the best place for her to go. Um, and after the episode of Deadly Possessions aired, a lot of people reached out to, reach out to her um, saying, though, they're like, I don't like the way Peggy was portrayed in that episode. And I felt like she was disrespected, but she went back and forth about it for a, quite a while with her husband. 
until finally they agreed that it was the best idea, but they gave Zach some parameters like you know make sure people aren't touching her if they're going to go take videos or pictures of her they ask for permission like all this kind of stuff and Zach happily agreed and then Jane happily gave him Peggy and that is where Peggy is to this day fine (laughs) (laughs) the end so if I ever do get to go to that museum which I have wanted to go to for so long since Mm -hmm. I heard about it I will go and I will see Peggy, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I don't know how I feel about that. Let me know, because I don't know <laughs> if I want to mess with that. <laughs> yeah, I definitely won't touch her. That's for damn sure. Oh, yeah. But it's it's interesting, too, because I didn't realize that Zach has another show called um, A Haunted Museum. Mm-hmm. So I had started an episode about Peggy that he has on there. And I was like, wait, this isn't the one where Jane's on Deadly Possessions, which is also takes place in his museum. But basically, a haunted museum is like his show where he tells the stories about the dolls. And so like the whole story that I told from the episode one where she went and got the doll from that lady who had her in her shed, all that stuff, obviously it was dramatized, but it was that. It was like actors acting that out. So that was pretty interesting too. But yeah, that's the story of Peggy the doll. Awesome. <laughs> Hopefully it didn't scare you too much. Yeah, as I'm about to go get ready for bed. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening. Yes, thank you. Check us out on social media. And our email is on all of our social media if you want to reach out to us. And yeah, we hope you join us next week. Thank you, guys. Have a good yeah (laughs) be safe out there guys yeah bye bye